We are in a uh, brand new, or not a brand new, but we're in a series of teaching called Gaze, Beholding the Glory of God, and we're talking about seeing God clearly. And 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we're changed into the same image of God as we behold His glory. As you see God for who He is, you'll be changed into that same image. We're always being conformed into whatever image of God that we have. A lot of the reasons that many Christians are very angry, uh, not super happy people is because they view God as an angry, uh, not super happy God. And if that's the God you serve, you'll always be made like the image of the God that you worship. So we want to strip away wrong ways of thinking about God that make it difficult for us to see who He really is. And we've dealt with some wrong ways of thinking about God that came from Old Testament scriptures. And right now we're talking about wrong ways of thinking about God that actually came from Greek philosophy. And it's interesting, uh, Greek philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, they sat around and they thought about what God was probably like and they came up with some ideas about God that were assimilated into Christian theology around the time of Augustine. And uh, it's not that we hate Aristotle or Plato or anything like that, but it's important to understand that these guys were pagans. They didn't read the Bible. They didn't, they didn't know about Jehovah. They were reasoners, and they sat around and thought about what God was like, and they came to three conclusions about who God must be. And uh, we went over these two weeks ago, and I'll go over them again really quickly. They said that God must be impassable, which means that God does not have emotions. He can't feel anything. That He is immutable. He cannot be changed or affected by anything. And He is timeless. He's outside of time and not affected by time in any way. And uh, I've said that I, I disagree pretty much completely with the first one. I think if you read the Bible, it's pretty clear that God does feel things and that God does have emotions. If you want to look back on that, that message is on our website. I won't rehash that, but it was two weeks ago. Uh, and today we're going to talk about the immutability of God, uh, whether or not God can change. And this is a pretty big subject, but uh, we're going to do it as thoroughly as we can this morning, and I think it will bless you. So, we're going to run through a bunch of scriptures really quickly. Is everybody ready? So, we are not going to turn to these because it'll take too long. But the Bible does support the immutability of God. Sort of. <laughs> so, let's run through the scriptures that support the immutability of God first. Hebrews 13 8 really quickly says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus doesn't change. How many of you are thankful for that? Yeah. Malachi 3 and verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Numbers 23 verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Repentance implies changing your mind, altering something. He says, I... I'm not like that. I'm not like you wishy-washy humans. Let's do another New Testament one, James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Everybody see that? 
So thank God we don't have to stress about whether or not Jesus is consistent. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same Jesus that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's still around today. He's still preaching, teaching, healing, delivering, setting free, and so forth. So we're really thankful for that attribute of God and that he's consistent and that we don't have to worry, you know, if he'll wake up on the wrong side of the bed or something like that. He's the same. However, there are a bunch of these scriptures. So let's read these really quickly. Exodus 32, 12 through 14. This is Moses, and he's talking to God, and God is mad at the nation of Israel because they've gone into idolatry, and he's about to destroy them. And Moses says this, Why should the Egyptians say for mischief God brought them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? And he says, Turn from your wrath and repent of this evil against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore unto your own self and said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the sky. And all this land I have spoken and given your seed forever, etc., etc. Last verse. And the Lord repented of the evil that he thought to do to his people. But he see that. So he was going to destroy the nation of Israel, and then Moses interceded, and he said, well, no, I won't do it. Jeremiah 26, verse 3, really quickly, God is talking about the fact that he's going to bring judgment on the nation of Judah, and he tells Jeremiah to go out into the street and start telling people to repent. And it says, it, he says, it might be that they'll listen to you and that they will turn every man from his evil way, that I might repent me of the evil which I purpose to do unto them because of their evil doings. What's he saying here? He's saying, look, because of the covenant that we're in in the Old Testament, if you read Deuteronomy, this is, this is one of the stipulations. If the nation goes into idolatry, God has to bring a foreign country to come destroy the nation. But he doesn't want to do that because he's a good God. And so he says, Jeremiah, please go out and try to get people to repent so that maybe I won't have to do this. Now, if you know the end of the story, the people did not repent, and ultimately God had to destroy Jerusalem. But nevertheless, it, it implies that maybe that didn't have to happen. 1 Samuel 13, 13. I know we're doing this quickly. So uh, God makes Saul king. How many remember King Saul? Before he went crazy, he was doing a pretty good job. But then he began to get into sin. And he um, basically he tried to operate as a priest when he was a king. And that teaches us you want to stay in your lane. Don't, don't get outside what God's called you to do. Don't let envy push you to do something you aren't called to do. And uh, Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly, and you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now would the Lord have established your kingdom upon Israel forever. What's that saying? It's saying God planned, it was God's will, for Saul and his descendants to rule over Israel for how long? Forever. But Saul did foolishly, and then what did God do? He says, I went and found a man after my own heart. Who was that? David. And David became king, and David's descendants became king. But it's possible, according to this scripture, that perhaps Jesus could have descended from Saul. But Saul went a little bit crazy. Now, let's do some New Testament 
examples. Is Jesus God? Better believe it. John 2, 2 through 6. This is maybe one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. Jesus goes to this wedding, him and his disciples, and when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus, Mary, says unto them, they have no wine. And Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour has not yet come. That reads a little harsh in the King James. He's not being disrespectful to his mom. In the, in the Greek, he's, it's kind of a term of endearment. He's, he's saying, mama, you know, it's not the right time for this. I know you want to see me do a miracle. I know you've been waiting for 30 years. And I know that I know that that's been frustrating to you. But it's not the right time yet. Now, watch what Mary does. I love this so much. His mother says unto the servants, whatsoever he says to you, do it. And then there were set six water pots of stone after the man appeared found of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. And if you know the rest of the story, what does Jesus do? He turns that water into wine. So here's the story, all right? Mary says, Jesus, there's a problem. We're out of wine. A lot of people have that problem. In the, in the, they're, out of, they're out of joy, okay? We don't want to have a shortage of joy. And, and, and Mary says, we're out, of, we're out of wine in this place. And Jesus says, that's not really my problem. It's not time for me to do any of this. I don't need to be turning water into wine in the middle of this party. And Mary basically ignores him. And she breaks, she breaks these pots up and says, now, whatever Jesus says to do with these pots, just do, you know, just do it. Imagine the, she, there's no record that Jesus, actually, he says this is the first miracle that Jesus did. Never done anything else. Imagine the faith of Mary. But she's been holding on to this promise for 30 years. My son's the Messiah. About time to see something, Jesus. Let's get this party started. And Jesus, Jesus probably looks at the Father and he's like, well, I guess we're going to change the plan. And he makes the wine. That's crazy. That's hard to understand. Mark 7, 25 through 29. I'll summarize this one for you. Uh, Jesus is walking along, and a, and a Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile, comes to him and says, My daughter's uh, sick. She's demon-possessed. Will you please heal her? And Jesus says, No, it's not the right time. He says, It's not fit to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Now, that's hard to understand in our culture, but you've got to recognize Jesus was born under the law, and he was born as a Jewish man under the law, and he was trying to wrap up the law so that he could go and save the Gentiles. That was the whole point, but it wasn't really time yet to heal the Gentiles. In fact, he says, I'm not sent, I'm not sent to anybody except these Jewish cities. I'm trying to deal with, with my people, the Jews, first. And then after that, I'll send Paul and Peter and all these guys. And that, that Paul got millions of Gentiles healed and saved and, and delivered, all right? So it's not like God doesn't love the Gentiles. It's just he had this plan, <laughs> which was to stick to the, the plan, to the Jewish people. And, and the, but this woman won't let it go. And she says, yes, Lord, but the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. That's a lot of faith. And Jesus says, for this saying, go your way, the devil is gone out of your daughter. Again, I wasn't going to do this because it's not the right time, it's not the right plan, but you make a really convincing argument, so 
There you go. Well, that's pretty intense. It really is, especially if you understand classical concepts of immutability and whether or not God changes his mind and, and all of this. And, and it calls into a lot of question. How do you reconcile these two things? Well, in my opinion, it's actually pretty simple. God's nature and his purposes do not change. God's always good. God's always love. God's always going to be good. He's always going to be love. And he always has a purpose. He wants, he wants everybody to come into relationship with him. He wants to rescue his kids. He wants your life to get better. He wants heaven to come to earth. That's really the plan. But his, his, his plans to achieve his purpose and his decisions for carrying out those purposes, they adapt in real time due to human choice. Somebody said God's like the divine GPS. You know, if you start going this way and you go, you know, God says turn right and you turn left, he's recalculating. All right, now we're going to go and, and he recalculates the thing. And if you're to believe the words of Jesus in John 14, 9, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How many of you believe that? Yeah. Well, what does he mean by that? He means that, that the Father is actually like him. He's, he's trying to say, look, guys, this three and a half years that we've been hanging out, we've been talking, and you've been relating to me, and I've been asking for feedback, and, and we've had this amazing relationship. That's what it's supposed to be like between you and the Father. That's it. Um, the, the Father is not some disconnected, dispassionate, faceless person in the sky. He looks just like Jesus. So what's the difference, Pastor, between this and the classical idea of immutability? Well, the guy that really came up with this was Aristotle, and he said that God is the unmoved mover. Anybody heard that phrase? Two people. Excellent. <laughs> the unmoved mover. And so what he meant was that God is in some place outside time and space and that, that he's sort of isolated and, and that he affects other people. He affects other things, but nothing affects him. It's like he's a one-way, you know, if you try to blow something up and it's got like a one-way nozzle on it. Does that make sense? Stuff can flow out of God, but there's never any feedback. Nothing affects him. He just pushes other things. And what does he do all day long? Well, according to Aristotle, he sits around and he thinks about thinking. Which is interesting because that's what Aristotle did all day long. And if you're not careful, if you don't submit yourself to this, you'll, you'll end up creating a God in your own image. That was what Aristotle valued, was thinking about thinking. And he's really good at it. His stuff about logic is, is fascinating. I love it. You can become a good, I don't know how to say the word, logistician or something like that by reading Aristotle. But, but uh, it's not the Bible. Okay? And so if God is immutable in the classic sense, then he responds to nothing and he's the ultimate cause behind everything. So different traditions believe this differently. But in many Christian circles, if you... If you believe God's this unmoved mover, then what you're effectively saying is that God's the cause behind everything that is occurring down here. 
but he himself is affected by nothing. And we end up with, with this sort of difficult belief, which I disagree with, that God is controlling everything and that everything happens as his will. Um, a, a more recent theologian has co coined this term that God is actually the most moved mover. And I like that a lot better. It means that God is both active and responsive. He both initiates things and then responds to people as they make choices. Now, all that's really interesting. It's a whole bunch of scripture. But basically, I'm just saying a whole bunch of stuff to tell you what you already know, which is that God wants a real, vibrant relationship with you. And that these interactions between, like, Mary and Jesus, I believe that's an authentic interaction. I don't believe it's some sort of manipulation where, where, now, I mean, I know this begs questions about, well, what about, what about the omnipotence of God and the timelessness and, and all that stuff's really, really complicated and I may or may not talk about it. Um, I'm still praying about it. But the fact of the matter is it's either, either God is genuine when he says, I was going to do this and then you happened and so I did this or he's making the whole thing up. And if you didn't have this preconceived notion that, that we have no way to affect God's heart, then, you, then I, I think you just simply believe that God certainly doesn't change his nature, but he changes his mind. I think that's the most simple way to read the scripture, the most honest way to read it as I, as I look at it. Now, sometimes that stresses people out because you look at like Moses and you think, wow, Moses saved the nation of Israel by by interceding and he staved off judgment and all this. And some people can take this big burden on themselves because they believe that God is about to destroy America or some, some whatever. And so now I've got to intercede for like 20 hours a day and all this. No, all that wrath and judgment was, was right. done away with and God's loving and he's not mad at people. So, right. so uh, intercession, how many of you would like to do New Testament intercession? All right, here's what, it, here's what it looks like, okay? You, you can do a bunch of different things, but one of the best things you can do is you can take your place as a son or daughter in the kingdom and you make pro prophetic declarations over yourself, over your family, over your city, over your nation. So do you want to practice together? Yes. All right, so let's all, let's make some, let's, now this only works for sons and daughters. It doesn't work for servants. Because servants don't have the authority to do this. So what do you believe about yourself? So, from your place as a son or a daughter, let's say this. I am blessed. The favor of God is on me. The favor of God is on my family. The Lord is increasing me. More and more. Me and my children. My city is blessed. My family is blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. And you can be more specific about things, whatever you're believing for. But that's what New Testament... So don't, don't stress that you got to stave off the wrath of God. Jesus took care of that. All right? So, two views of God. I like this analogy. God's either mostly closed or mostly open. Um, I was thinking about this. Sometimes I play, well, I mean, I, I play with my four-year-old a lot. Anybody ever played with a four-year-old? He loves to play with all these action figures. 
And uh, so he'll give me a team, and he'll have a team. And it's a good guy team, and there's a bad guy team, and there's a good guy castle and a bad guy castle. And what I've discovered is that he wants my input in the game, but not really, because, <laughs> because he already has it in his head how the game is going to play out. And what I've found is that when I move certain pieces and do certain things, I'm not doing it the right way. And really what I've got to do is whatever he already has in his head that needs to happen for the game to play out in the exact way that he thinks that it, it should. I've, I'm told by my mother that that's exactly how I was, so I guess it's fair. <laughs> but I think this is really, you know, this is typical of children. It's typical of four-year-olds because they want to have control of everything, and they're, they're immature, and they have this picture of how everything can play out. And, and there's not really space for me to add my two cents to how the game should happen. But here's an amazing thing. That's how kids think. It's not how grown-ups think. With any grown-ups in the building. It's not, it's, it shouldn't be how you think. Because if you have real relationship with somebody else, what makes the thing work is that you aren't in control of the other person. That's what makes the love real. That's what makes it fun. That's what makes it exciting. That's also what makes it scary. Because they could do something that would hurt you. But we believe that God is, is open and vulnerable to his creation. It means that God gives humanity free will and then responds to their choices in accordance with his character and the covenants that he's made with them. Well, pastor, why does all this matter? Why are you talking about this? Well, several, several things. First of all, again, relationship with with robots are unfulfilling. I've got one of those Alexa things. She can tell me the weather, but that's about it. It's a very unfulfilling relationship. God did not, God did not create you to be a robot. Secondly, God is looking for partners, not slaves, not servants. Hosea 2.16 says, It shall come to pass in that day that you will call me Ishi, beloved, lover, spouse, and no more Bali, which means basically a demonic overlord. You're going to quit calling me master and you're going to call me partner. That's a good word right there. Does that, now, does that mean that, that we don't ever follow God's orders? No. If God gives you an order, listen to him. But as you grow and develop in your relationship with God, what you may find is that he gives you fewer and fewer orders and he instead asks you what your dreams are. All right, let's read this scripture. It's so, it's so amazing to me. I, I believe God longs to have conversations with you that shape the future, yours and others. So God, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> he's about to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But before he does this, he makes this statement in Genesis 18, 17. Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? And it goes on to say, because he's going to be a great nation and many people are going to descend from him. So I'm going to go down there and consult with Abraham before I go and destroy this city. Wow. What? Listen, listen to what I'm saying. The, the God of the universe, 
He says, well, I got to go down and I got to destroy this city. But you know what? This Abraham guy that's my buddy, he's really important. And so I'm not going to make a final call on this decision until I go have a discussion about it with Abraham. And if you remember the story, he has the discussion. And Abraham says, you know what, God, what if you go down there and there's 50 righteous people? And God says, you know what, you're right. I won't destroy it for 50. And Abraham says, well, what about 45? And God says, you know what, you're right. And, and he gets all the way down to 10. What if he'd have kept going? Well, it might have been that God wouldn't have destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because there was one righteous guy living there. His name was Lot. Does God need Abraham's input? Of course not. He's God. But he wants it. Man, that's amazing to me. God, you know, now we got to remember, all right, God may not show up and, and say, you know, should, what should I do about the fate of this nation or something? We're not all, we're not all Abraham, okay? But certainly does he want to have a conversation with you about your life yes. and what things you want and the things you have influence over? Yes. He wants to dream with you. Yes. He wants to partner with you. Many people really go through life feeling like life is something that, that happens to them. And God, they believe, is some sort of force that's orchestrating all the stuff in our life without any input from us. Now, there are things happen that are beyond our control, and I, I understand that. But a lot of things, God wants to, to have input with you. I mean, some of you, it, it'd stress you out if you knew what the conversation looked like for us to plant this church. But, but we, we asked God, should we go plant a church? And God's like, well, do you want to? <laughs> well, yeah, I really do. It's, it's, big, it's a dream that I have. And, and I'm like, well, where should I plant it? I kind of want to go back home to Kansas and be with my family. And God said, well, that's amazing. You ought to do that. And, and I said, well, maybe I ought to go to Texas and plant a church with, with my buddy because I love my buddy. And God's like, well, you, you can. <laughs> and, and, I, and after a while, actually, he, he ended up saying that was probably not the right decision. And it, it worked out good because my buddy actually started a church, and that was the will of God. So, um, But then we were trying to figure out where, to, where to, you know, we looked at Topeka. We thought about planting it in Topeka, and then we thought about planting it here, and and we prayed. We visited both places. And it was like, well, it'd be great if we planted it over there. It'd be great if we planted it here. And I went to IHOP, the, not the pancake place, although that place is anointed too. But I went in there and I can get good revelation at IHOP, either place. Um, so anyway, I was in the prayer room and I heard God say to me, what do you want to do? And I said, well, to be honest, Father, I'd love to raise my kids in Kansas City. I love this city. I love the town. I love uh, the area. I love the chiefs. That's a carnal, carnal reason. But, but I, I love it here. If I could live anywhere, it'd be here. And God's like, well, why don't, you, why don't you come here and start a church? And I said, to be honest, Father, I'm intimidated to come here. There's a lot of great churches. I don't need to, you know, people ought to go to IHOP or something. I don't, I don't need to. And God said, no, just, just do what's in your heart. And so... Uh, life is meant to look more like, like these kind of back and forth conversations where we're dreaming with God than it is just, just following orders. Now, again, if you get an order, do it, okay? We're not disputing that. But you might get to a place where God doesn't give you very many anymore. 
All right, Song of Solomon 7, verses 10 through 12. I don't have the time to take you through all this, but the book of Song of Solomon is a prophetic picture of, of the relationship between the bride of Christ, the church, and Jesus. And it's a progress from immaturity to maturity. And at the beginning of the book, Jesus is always saying to the bride things like, come up here and come, I want to hear your voice. Come pray, come do this with me. And at first, the bride's like, no, that looks really scary. I'm going to stay down here. <laughs> and, and then Jesus loves on her some more. And then she goes to the mountaintop and she starts to, to, to see people healed and, and fight demons and all this. And that's what the prophetic picture's about. And, and anyway, at the end of the song, she reaches a place of maturity. She's not perfect. Everybody say, I haven't arrived, but I've left. All right, so she's not perfect, but she's left. She's growing in maturity, and she says this. She says, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. And then she says to Jesus, come, my beloved, let us go forth into the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine flourishes. She's saying, Jesus, let's go over there and pray for this person. Jesus, let's go, let's go do something great for your kingdom. I woke up early today. I'm in a devil stomping mood this morning. I want to find somebody to pray for. I want to find somebody to love on in the name of Jesus. She doesn't have to be ordered to do it. She wants to do it because she's been loved into a place of wholeness. Now, if you aren't there, don't stress out. you got to be loved. You, you don't go out and just try to do this. You'll do it in legalism. Right. You just wait till you're loved on enough, and then you want to do stuff. I wanted to plant a church. That's why I came here. All right, one last verse. Everybody all right? Yeah. Look up one more. Look up just a few verses. Song of Solomon 7, verse 5. This is one of the most precious things God's ever shown me. It says... This is Jesus talking to the bride. And he says, Your head upon you is like caramel, and your hair of your head like purple. The king is held in the galleries. Uh, that's hard to read in the King James. What it says is that the bride's hair is crowning her like royalty. Purple is the royal color. Okay? And it says that the king is captivated by the, her tresses. Tresses are a picture of your, of your hair. What is this saying? It's saying the bride of Jesus, the church, went and got her hair done. She got an updo, blowout or something. She looks good. She looks good, and she knows it. And here's the amazing thing. The king likes the fact that she knows it. <laughs> I'm telling you, God is calling us to a place of confidence, not, not arrogance, not false humility, but somewhere in the middle there's confidence. there's, there's the, the, the reality that I've actually been changed and that my sin is dealt with, and I really am beautiful to God, and I really am holy and righteous, and I step into myself, and it's actually attractive to God that I hold my head up and I don't look like a whipped dog anymore. I actually, I actually 
have confidence in who Jesus has made me. Those of you men that are married, you know it's awesome when your wife looks good and she knows it. Can I get an amen to that? It's, it's, you, you, want her, you don't want her walking around with her head down. She doesn't look pretty that way. This is, this is a continual story of the Bible. It cracks me up. I think God must get frustrated sometimes. You know, he shows up to Gideon. The angel says to Gideon, Hail, mighty man of valor. Go in this thy strength and deliver Israel from her oppressors. And Gideon says, Well, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm the, the biggest loser in the biggest loser family. Nobody <laughs> loves me. I'm a major failure. And, and, and the angel basically ignores him. And he just goes on and he says, you're amazing and you're, you're going to conquer these, uh, uh, who's he fight? I forget. The, uh, the, anyway, you're going you're to go conquer the, the enemies of Israel. And, and, and Gideon just goes on and complains about who he is. And finally, finally the angel says, look, just, just calm down. I'll give you a sign, all right? And he says, if, you, if you're still feeling discouraged, just go listen, to the, go listen to the enemy's camp. Go listen to how the devil talks about you. And he, he goes down and he listens to these, these foreign enemies. And the one guy has a dream. And in the dream, he sees this thing. And, and his, his friend's like, well, that's none other than Gideon. And he's going to come here and kill all of us. And Gideon's like, oh, I'm encouraged. I went to the enemy's camp. I listened to the devil for a minute, and I realized, I realized that he is defeated. I realized something about myself. I'm not, I'm not a loser anymore because I've been changed. Well, hallelujah. Is anybody encouraged? Let's all stand up. If I could have my prayer team come down here. I'm going to pray for everybody, and then uh, if you need personal prayer, you can come down and receive it. Remember, it's Pizza Sunday. We'd love for you to stay and eat with us. If you have little kids, uh, please remember to, to go get your kids from the nursery and children's church. I know it's tempting to just go out there and talk to everybody. That's what we want you to do. Just, just get your kids also, and then they can all hang out. If they can all run around out there. It's no problem. My kids will be doing that too. So... We love you. Jesus loves you. And Jesus wants a real partner. Not somebody that he can just boss around and order around. He wants you to walk with confidence. He wants you to put your shoulders back a little bit and hold your head up high. Straighten your crown. Remember who you are. 